Welcome to the Ingrained and Balanced Podcast, a place where busy adults can find the knowledge and inspiration to get back on track to living a healthier, well-balanced lifestyle. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ingrained and Balanced Podcast. Wow, excited today. We have a great, really interesting conversation to share with you. Our guest speaker today, her name is Jacqueline London who is a registered dietitian. She has a book out. Uh, we'll get into a little bit later. She's a nutrition and health media expert and a brand consultant. Jacqueline received her bachelor's degree from Northwestern University and earned her master's degree in clinical nutrition and dietetics from New York University. Her book, Dressing on the Side and Other Diet Myths Debunked, 11 Science-Based Ways to Eat More, Stress Less, and Feel Great About Your Body has been reviewed by national publications, including the New York Times, Forbes, Prevention, Today.com, and more. London debunks the diet myths and mental blocks that keep you from reaching your health and weight loss goals. Filled with accessible information, simple strategies, and practical application of scientific research, London empowers us to form lifelong habits that result in real, long-lasting change while meeting the demands of our busier-than-ever lifestyles. Dressing on the Side is the anti-diet book that will completely transform the way you think and speak about food and health and help you lose weight for good. Jacqueline continues to serve as a go-to nutrition and wellness expert for print, digital, and broadcast media outlets, appearing on Today, Good Morning America, The Rachel Ray Show, the Dr. Oz Show, Inside Edition, and CBSN. Wow. I mean, we're going to get into your gut health, antibiotics, and just daily approaches on how to address better eating habits and addressing just kind of the excuses that everybody makes and what's an easier way just to get the ball rolling with little incremental steps you can do to start eating better. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, Jacqueline, again, thank you so much again for joining us today. We're really excited to talk to you. Again, I have Marty, my co-host here, and we're ready to dive right into this. So how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you both so much for having me. It is such a pleasure to be here. So I really appreciate it. And I love your energy. It's just great to be with energetic people, just just in general, just to spend more time with energetic people like you. So wonderful uh, to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's one of the things we preach, right? Is some of the stuff we'll dive into later, but it's, it's if you live well, you eat well, you get a lot of rest and you manage stress, you maintain good energy throughout the day and everybody around you should feel that. But um, so with that said, before we get started, we always like to ask, what is a daily habit that you practice every day you actually did this morning? What did you knock out? I drank my coffee. Uh, that's as far as I got. Okay. So I, I, I'll be, I'll be completely honest. I'll be completely honest. I am not a morning person. I have never been a morning person and I have fought against this fact my entire life. I trained and I ran a marathon, which as I'm sure you both know, none of that takes place at 10 o'clock at night. That all happens at like five o'clock in the morning. You know what I mean? I made, I forced myself to do it, but I, you get to a certain point and you're like, I've done it. I can check this box. I know that if I had to, <laughs> then I could. But for me, 
I'm going to play my strength here. My strength is, is screaming sort of like an infant and just, you know, whining a lot about the fact that it's morning and I don't like mornings. Then I have my coffee. I like my coffee with cream. I like it with a little bit of Splenda. And then I'm ready for my day. And then I'm, then I'm ready to make my breakfast and get on with everything else in, in the course of the day. But I've got the, the constant in my morning routine is coffee. I'm big into working out at night because that's what works best for me. And I encourage anyone else listening, any, any others, both of you, whatever time of day works best for you is the time that's right for you. I think you are the first person on the podcast to admit that they're not a morning person. And I know there are a lot of people who are not a morning, morning people. I'm more of a morning person. Okay. So I think that's, that's, it. that's awesome. That was very courageous of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> so if, you know, well, people, you know, people who have like healthy habits are all like, oh yeah, I get up and nobody get like, no, you don't necessarily have to. Some people are simply night people and that's, that's cool. So I'm, yes, I'm here to normalize not yeah. having a morning routine. Okay. I have so, a nighttime routine. What did you knock out last night that is your, you know, one of the, your favorite or what you consider to be your most important healthy habits? My favorite activity, and this is going to sound a little bit bizarre, but you'll stay with me here for a second. But I discovered, so I live in Manhattan in New York City. And so there were few, during the pandemic, there were very few options once all of the gyms shut down and even, you know, going outside at the very beginning was in question. So for me, I discovered something that became my favorite workout now. So I don't always do this one, but last night I did, and that is going up and down the stairs of my apartment building, which is almost 50 floors. And I do that a couple times up and down. Better workout I have found for me than even going on a run, which can get, you know, there's the monotony of, of a run, right? But this has the kind of uphill and then the downhill and then a little more uphill, right? So mixing that up and going stairs, it's really the ultimate way of saying to yourself, there's no excuse. You can do this no matter what. It's the perfect way to sneak in a little bit of extra movement during the day. I love that. It's like whenever you can, right? I, I always tell people, listen, little things you can do. I say if you, if you work in, in a building that has, you know, let's say if your office is 10 stories or below, never take the elevator. Just walk. You could do 10 stairs. Just, you know, allow yourself 10 extra minutes so you're not late, right? Or, you know, if you're, if you're at the airport, don't take the walkway, you know, just walk, just take your normal walk. It's those little things that you get ingrained in your, you know, your ha habitual ways. It just, that gives you extra movement, those extra steps that can make a huge difference on your daily, weekly, monthly, right? Routine. Escalators huge are terrible. Difference. They're terrible. terrible. I avoid escalators at all costs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. You know, what's funny about it too is that I used to roll my eyes at this, right? I mean, before, and even, even when I was a dietitian, but before we sort of had this, um, this moment of like collective shutdown, right? Like a, before all of that happened, it's, it's almost like we took it for granted that so many things were available to us. What any kind of limitation does in any setting is that it actually, if you allow it to, it can open your mind up just a little bit to what is possible, right? So instead of thinking about what's no longer possible, you're looking at what is possible. And it's funny you say that because I, I was thinking about exactly that. As last night I walked into um, to a local supermarket 
I saw the escalator and now my, it's almost like my eyes are trained away from it. So like I'm automatically going right up the stairs. The more you get in the pattern of doing that, the easier it is to spot those opportunities to actually take a little bit of extra movement. And the, the, the strange nature of it is that I used to, when I say I used to roll my eyes at it, it's because I, I used to think, oh, it doesn't really matter. Now we have these, right? So now I have a watch literally telling me that it is beneficial for me to do this and showing me that my actions add up throughout the day. So that feedback loop is really helpful too. I was talking to somebody the other day and they're like, I, I want to design a, a, a kind of a little zapper on my Fitbit or my, my, my watch or whatever, where if it gets to like 6 p.m. and I haven't done at least 8,000 steps or drank my, at least five cups of water, I get a shock in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I said, that's a great idea. I love that. But it's got to be very, you know, effectful. It's got to be a good, really good shock or else you're just going to ignore it. So, <laughs> oh yeah, the good, the good shock as opposed the to good the bad shock. shock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's awesome. That's right. awesome. It'd be nice if it just talked to you, but just like in a, um, hi. Hi, Lonnie. Hi, Marty. It's Jackie. I'm just, I just wanted to let you know. I hope you guys are doing great today. Just wanted to let you know it's time to move your tush. It's time to get up out of your chair and go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I personally feel like I might respond better to that. I don't know. I could see an argument for both sides or a zap that's like, yeah, you know, could be either way. I love it. I love it. Well, I guess, why don't we take a few minutes and dive into the diet conversation. Obviously, you're a dietitian and, and Marty and I, you know, uh, we always tell people we, we kind of have different approaches to our eating habits and what we eat, but obviously we have the same goals in mind. You know, what, like we said earlier, what works for him might not work for me, so on and so forth. And I know, you know, as it, as it relates to you and working with clients, what's your approach like when you get into advising them what they should eat, what they should not eat? Do you do a like a, a, an assessment of where they're at? Like, how does the conversation start when you, when you, you know, meet new clients? It's such a great question because it, it, first of all, I will say that it always starts a little bit differently because it's always going to be based on the client. So however a client is approaching me, what they're listing as their primary problem, whatever it is that they're coming to see me for, I'm spending at least one to two full sessions speaking to a client about their specific lifestyle. Like as if I were following them around with a little GoPro and saying, like, make, like, give me a sense of a day in the life. And it doesn't have to do with, uh, with food very much at all at first, right? Because I want to get a sense of the single most important thing for, for my work, which is where you spend the most time. Honestly, where we are in a given day really determines the way that we approach making food choices and then the options that are also available to us in any and every scenario. So I'm not going to make a blanket recommendation to someone that is, you know, who is a fisherman in Alaska compared to someone who is working in an office building in Manhattan, right? Very different lifestyles. So I have to get to know the full person, where they spend the majority of their time where they are purchasing, procuring, how they're getting food onto the table, who else is in their family, their network, their circle, their um, their vicinity even, because that can be so common in offices is that you're very much influenced by people that are just next to you that you may or may not even in interact with very much, right? So everything to do with food has to do with where we spend the majority of our time and how we want to live our lives. But with the understanding that the way that we want to live and the way that we currently live will be somewhat 
related, right? We can't entirely, you know, decide that we want to live a certain life because it looks good or we've seen it look good on other people. We really have to find what works best for us. And I'm always, that's really the the main focus and, and the primary focus of my work is finding what's best for an individual and and helping to make patterns, habits, choices that are repeatable over time, especially. We try to help people or us included first of all, address what are the issues? What are your roadblocks? What's keeping you from getting you to where you want to be or where you need to be? And everybody will make some kind of an excuse, right? It's either I can't afford to shop at Whole Foods. I can't afford to eat organic food, or I don't have the time in the morning or at night because of my kids or my business, or I can't afford to you know, work out at an expensive health club or per, you know, hire a personal trainer. There's always that excuse. When it comes to food, I always tell people, like I went plant-based two years ago, and that has a perception of being more expensive, which it's actually not as expensive as long as you find the right place to shop. It's a proven statistic. It's 20 to 30% cheaper than, you know what I mean? That's in my research that I found because you can get, you know, good quality produce and, and, you know, vegetables and, and whatever it is you need without having to buy grass fed, you know, this kind of meat and this, that, and the other to live a healthier lifestyle. But for people like Marty, Marty isn't still eating a meat eating diet, so on and so forth, where I'm trying to connect. That's exactly what you're talking about for people that identify where do they spend the most time? That's such an interesting point. How would that correlate to how they can eat better? Right. Um, that, that that's an interesting point. I, I've never even thought of it that way, but it makes, it makes total sense. So if you, do you, do you live in a rural area or do you live next to a marketplace that's easily accessible, that's affordable? Or the other way, you have disposable income. It's not a problem where you can go to Whole Foods or shop at a, at a, you know, meat market that has the types of meats you want. What's your excuse? Then the question is, how do I eat for my particular situation? So it's a very interesting point. You know, I talk about excuses a lot because I, I often refer to them as cognitive distortions. I've written about this in my book. It's called Dressing on the Side and Other Diet Myths Debunked. The premise of the idea of some of these things that we commonly consider to be an excuse or, or a reason why we can't do something is twofold, right? One is that we believe that we can't because we've tried before. And the premise is way too difficult way too overwhelming, something that no humans were meant to do, right? Which is to abstain or restrict or eliminate an entire food, an entire food group, an entire nutrient category, right? All of these things are just not what we were meant to do as as people, as humans, as humans in 2023, which is also really important. And we can speak to that in a little bit. But the other component of this is that the more information that comes at us, and I would say, you know, we're more exposed to information than ever. I mean, there is information overload on everything and there's marketing everywhere. So we're battling against the cognitive distortions that are almost like not even our fault, right? Like the things that we were told as kids, right? Like you you can't leave the table until you eat all the vegetables on your plate or something like that, right? We're also thinking about the marketing messages that we may have consumed uh, as a child or as a teen, right, from magazines, from media of the moment in, in let's say, the 90s, right? Like that that would be, that's a powerful, some of these things are part of the monoculture that we don't have as much anymore, but that we certainly grew up having, right, and taking in as a part of our media diet. 
So we have that. And then you go to the supermarket. And this is one that I am often calling out personally, professionally, and, and when I have the opportunity to speak with folks like yourselves, which is that we don't even see sometimes the insidious nature of the marketing that's happening at the supermarket on food products, on in simply the design of the supermarket is its own marketing experiment, right? So there's so many things that come up for us and so many inputs that determine how we make decisions about food. And of course, and then I, I'm almost forgetting the most important one, right? Which is the dietary guidelines for Americans, which the USDA and the Department of Health put together every five years. There's so many different influences, right? So the way that we choose to make decisions about food has become more confused than ever. And that's why I think, you know, I'm willing to let everyone off the hook for the excuses because I think so much of where and why we are where we are is because we've been really misled in a lot of different ways from a lot of different sources. And ultimately finding our way back to where am I? What am I doing today? What am I in the mood to eat? What foods are available to me right now? And what foods do I want to get to make the stuff I already know that I like to eat and enjoy later on today? And what do my kids like to enjoy? Those are all some of the questions that I would be going through with someone in the stay-at-home mom position just to get a sense of where we're starting. We've talked very broadly about nutrition choices, cognitive distortions, which I think is a, is a wonderful term. And I, I appreciate that. When you are working with someone, you're obviously trying to get them to improve their basic habits. And, and particularly in terms of maybe, uh, maybe it's the amount of, of food they have or the quality of food or the diversity of food, or, you know, there's lots of different, you know, areas where you may be trying to help somebody improve their their habits, their decisions that they're making. So how do you get to to get them to change those habits? What how do you get them to overcome some of these these distortions? And then if if I could ask the second one, what is, you know, because we like to go, I particularly love to go to, hey, how do I get that first like big improvement? Like not the, not the, uh, not go from 95% to 99%. How do I get from like 55% to 80%? Like what, what are the simple things that I can do to get there? It's a great point. And also, you know, we do want to see some, I think there's a need in all of us. And particularly when you're working with a dietitian like me, right? Is that you want to see some kind of ROI on the actual experience, right? Like you want to know that you're in the right place at the right time and that you're in the right hands. So I, and I wrote about this a lot in dressing on the side. I go into detail on all three of these. I call these the right now rules. I'm not in love with the word rules, but we'll, we'll go, we'll go with them for right now. Okay. So I call these right now rules. The first one would be to, to eat breakfast. And this is going to sound like, you know, Literally, okay, grandma, like, thank you so much. <laughs> I, I get it. <laughs> the most important meal of the day, we get it. But honestly, I mean, there's a number of reasons why I say that. The first is that the there's a lot of mixed research out there about the quote unquote benefits of breakfast, whether or not it's beneficial for weight loss. The thing is, is that we, what we do know is, is that the research is mixed, but what we do know sort of unequivocally is that eating breakfast means you will burn more throughout the day. So you will use more energy throughout the day when you've eaten breakfast versus not eating breakfast at all, which is important. And it's something that's important for our long-term metabolic flexibility is that we want to be able to keep 
a healthy and active metabolism going. So better to start the day with a morning meal. And often a kind of secondary component of that is to build a better breakfast. So make it bigger. Almost everyone that I, that comes to see me for weight loss or weight management is, is not, is either not eating breakfast or not eating enough at breakfast. So I would say you want that morning meal to be like something you can't wait to get out of bed for something you look forward to, or in my case, something I look forward to after I've had my coffee. You always want to add a source of protein and extra, some form of fiber, whether that's in 100% whole grains, or it's coming from fruit, or it's coming from veggies. There's no reason why last night's veggie leftovers can't be this morning's uh, veggie scramble, right? There's lots of different ways to use what you have on hand. So maximizing the versatility and the kind of use case of all of the ingredients that you have on hand in your kitchen, easiest way to make breakfast, even for people who say that they don't like breakfast, which I totally get. But I think perhaps it might be that you don't like breakfast food and not that you don't like breakfast. This kind of second rule of this is to eat consistently throughout the day. So I give the benchmark of every three to four hours. And the key to this is because so often I hear one of the following sort of, we'll call them cognitive distortions in, in our discussion, right? That is like, I couldn't eat lunch today because I had a meeting during lunch. Or I I don't know what happened. I just completely, I was working all through lunch and I, I didn't have time to grab a sandwich or I didn't have time to have my snack because I was on a call and I couldn't eat during the call and I started to eat, but then it got cold. Right. But there's lots of reasons why we aren't eating and drinking consistently throughout the day. And both of those things are absolutely critical to staying on top of our hunger and satiety cues. It sounds really basic because it is, but it is also so fundamental. And we forget that we're not quite living today in a way that is as conducive to those things. So we have to make it easier on ourselves, right? I mean, there are ways to still do this while also making it easier on ourselves to stay consistent. And when I say drinking, I mean staying hydrated from unsweetened beverages throughout the day. Coffee, tea, water, sparkling water, whatever it is, as long as you're getting those fluids throughout the day from a non-sugar sweetened beverage, you're in great shape. I know so many people that are practicing or they're researching or thinking about trying fasting, right? I mean, we're so, there's so many mixed messages out there, you know, in the media, on the internet about the benefits or the, you know, why it's good, why it's not good. How do you, what do you think of fasting? And when somebody brings it up to you, what is your initial reaction to fasting? I know there's all kinds of different types, but yeah, what, what's your take? You, are you are you talking about intermittent fasting, or are you talking about going for like yeah, I'm sorry, or pretty much intermittent. No, intermittent. Okay. I'm sorry, okay. intermittent. Okay. Yeah, like I know people that don't eat anything till noon or some some till two, three o'clock. You know, and they're up at six, seven, eight in the morning, right? And they, some of you work out in the morning. I I can't relate because I'm like you. I believe and I've always I eat the same breakfast every day. Some people say it's boring, but you know, it's one of the reasons why I have the energy that I do at 52 years old and I exercise and. Blah, 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 blah. But I'm the same thing. I eat every three hours, three to four hours, and I practice that. But anyway, so as it relates to intermittent fasting, what is your take on that? So I, I know it's controversial. I'm not into it. And and I know and I know where people are coming from on this. And I understand some of the philosophy, some of the thought processes on this. The research is very limited. And as a practitioner, I'm practicing from it's an evidence-based practice nutrition science, but it's not just research. It's also about clinical experience. And in my experience, it is this, it, it is 
the lack of sustainability of being able to do this long-term that ultimately is often the greatest hindrance. Now, when I say this out loud to people, I will often get the, you don't know anything or do your research or <laughs> or some other sort of like idea that I've insulted or offended someone. So I will just say, just to to kind of, you know, cut cut that off right at the knees here is that honestly, whatever works for you is ultimately as a practitioner, the most important thing. So if someone is listening to this and is fasting right now and they're like, I just got to get to 12 o'clock or whatever it is, that they really feel like it's really working for them, then do you, you know, like I support you in that. If that's working for you, then go for it. But if you're questioning whether or not you want to go for this, I'm, I, I have often found that the single most game-changing thing that has, that I've seen with my clients, with the people that I've worked with, with people that I've counseled is that making this shift toward having a larger morning meal and seeing how that affects their appetite throughout the day and just kind of keeping track of it just for two to three days, just, just to kind of get a sense of how they're physically feeling how it's affecting their everyday physical activity and how it affects their sleep is it it winds up being such a game changer for people once they've seen exactly how it's moved the needle for them and how it's making them feel less like, oh my God, I just can't. Because the the other number one thing that I hear all the time in practice is I just can't stop eating late at night, right? Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Why am I so hungry? Or why can't I stop eating? Something must be wrong with me. And it's actually, no, it's the, you haven't you haven't had enough calories for the day yet. You only just started at 4 p.m. So it makes total sense that you're still hungry at night. You know, like it, there's a lot to do with the patterns and and the the activities that happen in between our meals and snacks that also play into how we're choosing to eat, how we're choosing to set up our day to make it work for us. So that really is why I ultimately come back to if it works for you, then maybe it's working for you because of those behavioral effects that it has in a very positive way, right? Like the one thing that I can say from research that could, that I, that is a place where I'm making the leap from the existing literature, right? Is that if you are fasting and therefore you've cut yourself off at a certain time of day, it may be that that automatically has the kind of ripple effect of helping you go to sleep earlier. That's the one benefit that I can see from this because we know that sleep Duration and quality has a direct relationship to hunger and satiety because of the hormones that regulate those two things, right? So if if it's helping you go to sleep early, earlier and therefore it's giving you better sleep for longer, then that's great. But that is, you know, that's really inferring a lot from the existing data. We don't know that to be true and we don't know necessarily that that's working for everyone. So better to focus on what really works within your lifestyle. And I have seen this work better when you consider more frequent meals versus trying to go for prolonged periods and abstaining from eating food. Such great points. Wow. Wow. I love it. I love it. Without getting too scientific, can we get a little into gut health and why it's so important? I, the, a lot of the research that I've done in the last couple of years, and one of the reasons I decided to try plant-based and I fell in love with it. Um, and I probably says because of what I discovered as it relates to gut health. Could you talk a little bit about that? If somebody were to ask you, why is gut health important? What do you, how do you get into it? So your GI tract is like the, the bodyguard to your immune system. So that is really as much as you need to, to know to really understand why gut health is so significant. 
question. Now, I will say that that has become a little bit of like the trendy marketing term of, I want to say 2022, 2021, even, dare I say. Like, I feel like it has become the ultimate like TikTok marketing MLM scheme. Like, I, I'm worried about what's happening behind the curtain with with all of these people claiming to be a gut health expert. I'm not sure what that means. A gut health expert is A, you, the person who has the GI tract that feels good or doesn't feel good on a daily basis, right? And then also a gastroenterologist. So those are the primary people. And then I would also say a secondary would be a consulting registered dietitian to help you make dietary tweaks to, to make sure that you're feeding your gut what it needs. There's two main components of what makes for a healthy gut. And that's back to your plant-based point, Lani, is that the idea of fueling your body's beneficial bacteria, the gut microbiome, uh, is critical to making sure that your, that your overall immunity is as strong as it can possibly be. So probiotics, we all hear about probiotics. They are the beneficial bacteria that live in your gut that protect uh, your both your immune system and help the the other beneficial bacteria, the other beneficial microorganisms in your body to survive and thrive. And that's what we want is we want more of the good stuff and less of the not so good stuff. To get there, we need to eat more plants. So where do we find plants? Prebiotic fiber is found in veggies, fruit, 100% whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. So just simply making a shift Toward including more of those things is an automatic way to improve gut health without overthinking it, without worrying that we're not taking the right supplements or the right powders or drinking the right, you know, so there's, it's just very, very simple as we want to make sure that we're getting that right balance. And there are occasions where you'll need to increase um, actual dietary sources of probiotics. So you can do that with fermented foods, all types of fermented foods. And of course, and my, my number one tip on this is to look for um, plain and unsweetened Greek yogurt, like as a swap for so many things. And when you think about how many different ways you can use something like Greek yogurt, it actually becomes a lot easier. Like I just bought this ranch, this dry mixed ranch dip, and then I made it with Greek yogurt last night. It was a perfect veggie dip instead of sour cream. But why Greek yogurt instead of something else is because you can find ones that have at least five live and active cultures added in on the ingredients list. So once you can see that there's at least five live and active cultures, you're automatically giving your gut the opportunity to, to be exposed to a wider variety of different types of bacterial strains versus just one or just two, because that's not really doing all that much. You want to have more the better when it comes to those bacterial strains in that can therefore become the live and active cultures. Because there's no real way, and you'll see this on a lot of different food packaging and different labels, is that there's no actual way to test for live and active cultures once that thing is sealed up, delivered, and shipped out to a grocery store, right? So there's no one there that can guarantee that you're getting a certain number of CFUs or you know probiotics in the zillions, right? No, no one can really guarantee that. So it's kind of a stealthy marketing trick, but you're optimizing your chances by making sure that you have five strains. So that's why I get the plug for Greek yogurt on that one. But otherwise, more veggies, more fruit, more wholesome plants, more often, you're in great shape for that. Yeah, and, and you don't have a financial interest in a Greek yogurt company by any chance. <laughs> I wish I did. I wish I did. I really do. Yeah, yeah. If you're listening right now, you would like to hire me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I have two uh, rules of thumb when people ask me, what are some easy things I can start today to, to make sure I'm, you know, changing my diet, getting better gut health, so on and so forth. I say, listen, when you look at your plate, these are simple rules, you know, look at your plate. You, it should be colorful. Okay. If it's not colorful, you're not getting the right, right fiber and possible proteins and things you need for your gut. And the other thing is, if you do still eat meat, your plate, try to make the majority of your portion on your plate should be colors, veggies, so on and so forth. If the majority of your portion is meat, you're, you're going down the wrong road. That's just my advice. Marty might not like that, but that's, that's what I tell people. I don't like it or dislike it. I, that's simply not the way I want to live. I mean, I love veggies, but I also like steak. I like chicken. I love fish. Like to me, that's important. That's what, you know, we have incisors for a reason. That's, you know, I know I'm sure that I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's lots of, 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 of research that you could point to that says, no, 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 that has nothing to do with ripping apart meat. I had a, um, a discussion with my doctor. So I went in to see my doctor, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was perfectly healthy, um, just for a checkup and stuff. And my doctor came in with a, with a mask, with a, with a, uh, a mask on. And so I, I must have given her a, a strange look or something like that. She said, Oh, don't worry. Like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a small virus. I've had a check for COVID. It's not COVID. It's not the uh, RSV. It's not the, you know, what she lists off some other virus that, that they're now testing for. She's like, this is just like your basic, probably your common cold virus. And so we, we went into a discussion about viruses and antibiotics. And I have never been, I, I was lucky. I was raised in a German family. So we didn't believe in like, medicine in general, but certainly we didn't believe in going to a doctor. So I did never, as a kid, I rarely, super rarely got antibiotics. And I feel like that's benefited me like later in life. I have a, I have a fiance who lived by antibiotics when she was a child and, and constantly got antibiotics and she has terrible gut health and she has, I, you know, not the greatest immune system, even though she works so hard and I learned about gut health from her. So can you talk a little bit about what happens when you take antibiotics and how you can help yourself afterwards? Yes. Such a great question and such a great point. And anecdotally, I found this to be so, um, so much more common than we think. I, I think I think it's a really great point. First of all, you hear the term antibiotic, and it is exactly what it sounds like, right? It is antibiotic. So you so often, especially when you think about broad spectrum antibiotics, ones that are designed to treat for a variety of different things, or to make sure that you're knocking out a specific virus, or to make sure that you're actually that it's just a high dose of something that is a more specific type of antibiotic, you are losing the good with the bad. Right. And it's when, so I go back to what I was saying about the beneficial and not so beneficial microorganisms that live within our body's own GI tract. The other thing I'll point out is that digestion, which something we often forget about is that digestion begins in your mouth. So your GI tract starts from your mouth all the way down to the end. Right. So it, it, that's a lot of surface area that we're talking about that we want to optimize to, to stay well. So when it comes to antibiotics, as far as making sure and looking for, you know, choosing the right things to help us optimize, I would say food first and foremost, right? So 
I, you know, and, and by the way, this is always a question to ask of a, of a prescribing physician. If you are prescribed antibiotics for whatever it is, then your next question should be, okay, I, I want to, I am, especially if you're like your fiance, someone who is more susceptible to, to feeling like this disrupts her, um, her gastrointestinal microbiome and, and has an, a very real and tangible impact on her. Then the next question would be, is there a specific type of probiotic that you would recommend that I take with this specific antibiotic? Because they will be different sometimes. And that is a, is its own very fascinating area of study right now. And it definitely seems to be picking up steam. So if there's one upside to the kind of marketing halo of gut health, it's this, it's that more research and more funding seems to be getting poured into this area, which can only benefit us, right? Is because we want to be able to make sure that we do have a wide range of different strains of probiotics. But I would say, you know, the number one question is, is there a specific type of probiotic that you would recommend based on this antibiotic that I take while I'm undergoing the course of treatment or after that? Because usually it's a period of about two weeks after you've taken the antibiotics course that you want to be able to to stay on those probiotics to kind of build back that gut flora. And then, of course, the, the thing is that probiotics will be a little bit useless if you're not eating the right foods to help them, again, survive, thrive, proliferate. So you want to make sure that you're having more of those whole grains, more of those legumes, those that fruit, veggies, increasing the amount that you have with your meals so you can keep that seafood, you keep that meat on the plate. It can be as big as you want. As long as you're doubling up on those veggies and fruit, you're great. You're in great shape. I love it. I love it. Well, Jacqueline, before we wrap things up, I want to dive into a little bit about, about your book. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about it and and what were your goals with the book and how's the response been so far? Oh, gosh. I, I mean, I loved this. I loved writing this book so much. And I honestly come back to it so often because I found that while so the book came out, it's called Dressing on the Side and Other Diet Myths Debunked, 11 science-based ways to eat more, stress less, and feel great about your body. It's a mouthful, but I promise it's worthwhile. So it came out in 2019 and I, um, I, I really based it. So at the time I was working at Good Housekeeping Magazine as nutrition director, overseeing all the nutrition related content for the brand um, across platforms. And I was really going back actually, um, to my experience in private practice to write the book because I was thinking about, okay, I get, I had a public kind of comment box of, of like an ask Jackie at goodhousekeeping.com. So I would get emails from many different readers, but I would also think about the various ways that patients would come in to first see me and the number of different myths, the big picture myths that I would hear as a reason why they felt like they could not make changes to their everyday eating patterns, how they physically felt, or make changes to their weight. So I took the kind of top 11 of these are the these are the things that I'm hearing the most often, and I'm going to debunk them soup to nuts from starting with, you know, why it is that you may be feeling this way or thinking this way, going into what are some of the factors that affect this specific myth or this specific distortion that's holding you back from actually realizing your goals. And then getting into the very real strategies for how to manage this, some approaches to take, some ideas to try, and really used some some real life examples from some of my clients who who struggled with a lot of different, very normal things that everyday people struggle with. We often tend to feel like, especially when it comes to our health, that we're very much alone. And I, I think that 
anyone who decides to pick up this book will find that you are a absolutely not alone. You have a very great company, but also that there's some very real things that we can all do that are that may seem very small at first. You know, that can seem like okay, she's telling me to eat breakfast, or she's telling me that I can't skip a meal, right? But once you start to practice these things, you start to find that they're they may be very simple, right? But change is always hard. So that's really the fundamental place where I think there's no myth that change is hard. But the simplicity of deciding to take small, very, very bite-sized, actionable, attainable steps toward building healthier habits is honestly the only way. And the more that we fight it, the you know, the more that we're setting ourselves up for a total takedown when yet another thing feels like it's failing or not working. So it's the most important thing that we can do is to actually practice making the choices that are right for us and putting those things into practice day after day is what that's the building blocks of healthy habits over time. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, you are preaching our gospel. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, our, our, one, of the main, one of the main things, one of the main things we preach is we tell people the reason where most people they're, they're intimidated to even start making changes because they're thinking of the hard work or the finish line, what it's going to take to get there. And instead, we always tell people, just focus on the starting line, you know, and, and what you could start right now, these little incremental things you can incorporate into your day that'll make a big difference. And when you start feeling the benefits of those incremental things, it's much easier to get that ball rolling faster, right? So totally, totally. I think I also think we totally lose sight of the fact that we practice everything else in our lives to get good at it, right? I mean, and eating is no different, but the beauty of eating is that there's just a couple hours and there's going to be another meal and you get to practice making more choices that feel like they're the right choices for you. So it's a, it's like a blank canvas every single time we eat and thinking about it like that can really be helpful because we're not, we, you know, it's, it's very hard. We're not taught nutrition in grade school or, or even in, depending on where we're coming from, we're certainly not taught about it growing up and we're not taught how to prepare meals or cook food for ourselves anymore in the same way that we once were. So it's very natural to feel a little out of practice. So making sure that we set up those times and those opportunities by having meals and snacks throughout the day, simplest way to start somewhere. I love it. I love it. I mean, well, with that, folks, uh, what an incredible conversation we had with Jacqueline today. You should really check out her book. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for the episode, also her social media handle, so you could check out what she's talking about, what information she's putting out there. You could follow her and more. I mean, this book sounds like a great kind of starting point for anybody that's trying to figure out how they can eat better and live a more well-balanced lifestyle. Well, Jacqueline, thank you again so much for joining us. And I don't know about you, Marty, but I'd love to talk to you again sometime in the future. Absolutely. You'd come back and- I love uh, that. All right. love that. All right. Great, great. All right, folks, make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't done so already. Check out the YouTube on video. Please leave a review and share this web or podcast with your friends and family, coworkers, yada, yada, yada. Love you. We'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.